Okay. Uh, hi, everyone. This is our Metropontsi reading group. We're continuing our reading of the structure of behavior. We are on chapter two um, after having skipped chapter one. So we're picking up from page 66 of the, of the translation. Um, so we're still on um, uh, some of the criticisms of earlier or less sophisticated uh, physiological accounts of behavior uh, in non-human animals and in humans. Um, um, and in particular, he's, he's talking here about localization. So this idea that there would be like particular regions of the brain that would each sort of be responsible for one type of behavior or one aspect of behavior in a very um, straightforward and simple way. So like, you know, this region would be the grasping region that would control grasping the hand. And then this other region would be like the... Um, uh, I don't know, detection of dots in the upper left corner of your eye um, region or, or something, you know, very, very straightforward um, relationships between one particular region of the brain and uh, a particular function uh, of perception and action. Um, and so he, he gives a number of arguments for why this sort of simple localization is not, um, is not um, possible or not uh, plausible. Um, and the, so the first one that we looked at uh, last time was how um, uh, damage to the brain seems to have much more complicated effects than you would expect on this account. Uh, so a lesion, um, an injury to the brain um, in, in one region can cause um, uh, a whole series of different types of uh, deficits or um, um, uh, inabilities in the patient who, who suffers this injury. And um, it's so it, like if you if you suppose that there were this very straightforward localization of functions in the brain, then you would expect that damage to region A that is responsible for function A would just mean that function A doesn't occur anymore. So like if the uh, hand grasping region gets damaged, then you would no longer be able to, to grasp things with your hand. Um, and it turns out that it's pretty rare that something this very simple like subtraction of uh, of one function um, happens as a result of an injury. What you find instead is uh, a much more wide-ranging disorganization of behavior. Um, so the um, like in some of the examples that uh, the patient uh, who's known under the initial S, if I remember correctly, um, that uh, Gelb and Goldstein um, talk about. Um, has some sort of um, injury uh, to the brain. Uh, and then it seems like what, um, yeah, S was the initial, right? So it seems like what he is, um, so he, he had been injured by um, a shell uh, during World War I. Um, he had a piece of shrapnel in, in his head or you know, was struck by a piece of shrapnel. Um, and the sort of diagnosis that, um, that, uh, Gelp and Goldstein give of like the general nature of his um, uh, disability is that he's incapable of grasping um, a structured whole as a whole. What he instead has to do is sort of um, look at each individual element uh, of the structure, sort of all the like little details. He sort of fixates on these details, and he can't um, he can't sort of figure out what aspects of the situation are important and which ones can be um, sort of uh, neglected as just inessential details. 
and and so like this is a, a different example that I brought up last time is um, um, uh, another study I think much later I think this is like the 60s or 70s there was a patient who um, um, looking at um, say like a a line um, on a on a screen or on a, p a piece of paper or whatever. Um, and you know the line might be at different angles. It might be vertical or horizontal or 45 degrees or whatever. And then if the experimenter asks the the patient, you know, can you put your hand at the same angle as this line? The patient is unable to perform this task. Um, it it just you know it, it it's too hard to sort of mimic the the angle of the line. But then when they give them the patient uh, a more concrete task um, where there's a a slot in a box and you give them a letter and you say, put the letter through the slot, um, the patient is able to perform this task, even though the actual movements of the hand are essentially the same in both cases. Um, so in order to perform the task of mailing a letter through a slot that could be at a different angle, you have to be able to perceive that angle and move your hands in, uh, in accordance with the perceived angle. Uh, and that's exactly what you have to do to perform the task of you know, mimicking the angle with your hands. Um, but, uh, in the one case, there's a, a sort of, uh, purpose to the behavior, um, and, and the patient is able to perform it. Whereas in another case where it is just a sort of abstract behavior of, you know, perform a certain motion on command, the patient is not able to perform it. Um, and so this, this kind of, um, seemingly paradoxical deficiency where your, um, your abilities and inabilities after an injury are not just a, a simple subtraction of one um, of one sort of uh, one function out of a, a whole repertoire function. That's instead a much more um, like diffuse uh, restructuring of the behavior of the whole organism. Um, and then that that sort of leads to another point that Merleau Ponty makes here is, is that um, the organism after an injury is not just sort of the same as before minus one function or one group of functions. Instead, you have um, the organism after an injury is still an organism that is trying to solve problems in relation to the environment. And so it's the whole organism that responds to the new situation. Uh, and often that means uh, adapting in various ways to the injury um, and um, in some cases finding workarounds for um, things that you're no longer able to perform. Uh, so, um, like the patient who um, maybe is not able to mimic the angle of the line perceived, if they sort of recognize this deficiency and uh, learn to sort of pretend that the angle is a slot that they're mailing a letter through, maybe they will learn after a while how to mimic that angle and sort of reproduce the behavior that they um, that they were not able to do. So. The yeah, so solving problems is part of what it is to be a living being in the first place. Um, and then um, even after an injury, the this ability to solve problems doesn't disappear. It's just that the um, means that you have available to solve problems are are more limited. Um, and then you you have to uh, you know readjust and sort of reinvent new solutions to problems that arise because of that um, injury. Uh, so. Yeah, so in general, the, the sort of methodological principle here is that you can't presuppose that the organism after an injury is just um, uh, like the same organism minus some function. 
that was destroyed by the injury. You have to look at the whole um, behavior of the organism as a way of solving problems and conducting its, its life in relation to its environment. Uh, and um, you have to look at all the different um, adaptation strategies that the organism might use to overcome the deficiencies that result from the uh, from the injury. Uh, and and so and again, th those adaptation mechanisms might also themselves be pathological in some sense. So like uh, one way of adapting to an uh, environment after an injury is just to avoid a certain type of uh, situation. Like um, if you have trouble adapting to um, um, noisy environments after an injury, for example, then you might just avoid going to bars or other noisy environments. And, and so that's in some sense, a pathological behavior because you're you're um, uh, sort of limiting the um, types of uh, environments that you're able to adapt to because of this injury. Um, uh, so, like, obviously, you wouldn't want to say the injury caused the person to avoid going to bars uh, in a sort of straightforward sense, but if the injury affects your auditory processing in some way, and then as a result of that, you adapt to the situation by not going to bars. Um, uh, but yeah, so it's a much more indirect and, um, complicated inter, uh, interrelationship between the results, um, uh, and the, uh, the actual, um, injury. So yeah, it's, uh, it requires a lot more interpretation than just sort of reading off the effect, uh, the function of a region of the brain from what, uh, deficiency the patient has after the injury to that region. Uh, okay, so I think that's um, more or less what we talked about last time. Uh, could I get a volunteer to read from the um, sort of bottom third, the, the first paragraph break on page 66? I can read. <clears throat> the comparison between Gelb and Goldstein's observations and those concerning uh, Vorkom's aphasic is even more demonstrative. The differences of the two cases are evident in the visual domain. Forkham's patient possesses much better organized givens than those of S, which amount to colored spots with neither contours nor precise dimensions. Inversely, <clears throat> S speaks much better than Forkham's patient. He has the use of a great many more expressions, and he is constantly correcting grammar. These differences to which we will return in a subsequent paragraph should not mask the traits which absolutely coincide in the two observations. The two subjects are equally incapable of executing an action based on simple verbal indication. In order to succeed, they must put themselves back uh, into the corresponding mental situation, which S achieves by repeating the order which was given him. Neither of them can designate the direction from which a sound is coming without orienting their body in this direction. Both can localize a pain in their body by means of touch, but they are equally incapable of indicating on a diagram the point where their hand stops. Forcom has insisted on the superiority of S in the use of language, in the manipulation of concepts, and on the deficiencies of his patient in this domain. But in order to appreciate exactly the situation of S in this regard, account must be taken of the substitutions which mask the gravity of these deficiencies in him. In reality, an attentive observation shows, for example, that for him, addition is reducible to a manual operation without any intuition of numbers. With respect to language, it is not at all normal in S, in spite of appearances, 
subject cannot follow a sermon or a discourse. He speaks fluently only in response to the solicitations of a concrete situation. In every other case, he must prepare his sentences ahead of time. In order to recite the words of a song, he is forced to take up the attitude of the singer. He cannot subdivide a sentence which he has just spoken into words, and inversely, words which are coherent but separated by a pause never constitute a phrase for him. He can neither spell the letters of a word which he pronounces well as a whole, nor write them separately, although he possesses the word as an automatic motor ensemble. This shows to what extent language is deficient in him, although although these insufficiencies are especially marked in the intuition of simultaneous wholes. Next paragraph is pretty long, so maybe I'll stop here. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, but this doesn't seem like there's anything radically new in this paragraph, just that even though there seem to be seems to be this um, difference in competency between S and the other patient, uh, the this is because uh, hold on, which one was supposed to be better? S um, is able to, I guess, better able to mask the deficiencies. Um, but when it comes to kind of abstracting instructions, for instance, uh, he is just as deficient as the other patient. Um, and just as kind of bound to the concrete situation in which the instructions were given. Right. And yeah, so the one thing that I, I should have mentioned earlier in my summary that we talked about last time is that these two patients reported by two different authors, they, in some sense, they seem to be opposite uh, of each other. Like one, um, I forget which one's which, but one of them uh, like focuses exclusively on details of the situation um, and is sort of incapable of grasping the whole uh, and then the other, the other one just has a sort of vague understanding of the whole situation and sort of ignores all the details. And so these seem like opposites in some sense. But what Merle um, Ponty and following Galpin Goldstein, what what they're arguing is that um, it's actually the same deficiency in both that is just sort of realized in two different ways. So in, in both cases, it's a failure to grasp the articulation of a whole. So like a whole that has a determinate structure. Uh, like most of us, you know, faced with, uh, say, like a word printed on a page or on a screen or whatever, we can read the whole word as a word, but we can also spell out the letters if you ask us to, um, uh, or, you know, we can say a sentence and then we can stop and like, you know, list each individual individual word in the sentence and so on. Um, so we, we grasp the whole and the parts sort of at the same time um, and the structure of those parts, how they relate to each other. Whereas these patients, like when you ask them, okay, like you, you just said this word, can you spell that word for me? Um, they, they find themselves unable to respond uh, because the, the, the whole sort of um, action of speaking a particular word is like one sort of whole for them. And then the relation of that whole to the parts, uh, you know, the, the individual letters that they write or um, the sounds that they pronounce, that, that relationship is something that they can't grasp anymore after their injury. Um, so, yeah, it's like what this kind of injury reveals is not just sort of the subtraction of one function, but it's uh, a new, uh, it, it sort of reveals how in uh, normal uh, human beings or people who have not suffered this kind of injury, um, that we have this capacity of grasping an articulated whole of, of, you know, grasping a whole together with the parts and how they're related to each other all at the same time. Uh, and and so this this capacity is like one of the sort of key um, aspects of um, what 
Merleau Ponty is is calling the structure of behavior. So yeah, it's it, behavior is not just this sort of um, atomic addition of simple behaviors into complex wholes, but it's instead this structured whole where we uh, like part of part of what it is to behave as a, a living organism and especially as a human being is precisely to um, grasp these these structured holes all at once, um, as opposed to having to you know have a vague sort of nebulous grasp of the whole, or on the other hand, a, a sort of labored going over each detail um, without being able to grasp the whole. Um, so that, yeah, that's that's what the, these kinds of injuries reveal is the deficiency is much more broad, much more wide ranging um, than just um, absence of one uh, one type of uh, function or one kind of behavior. Um, at Yann Claire. Um, if you would mind muting, just because uh, we're getting some noise of typing from your, uh, your, uh, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, no worries. It's, uh, it's just uh, a little bit distracting. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So this, so this, this whole like um, notion of a structure of behavior. Um, yeah. This is like the obviously the title of the book. Um, but this, this is this idea that. Um, there's more to behavior than just adding individual simple behaviors or simple responses um, um, that uh, that you know combine in a very straightforward sort of additive way into um, into you know the complex holes. So yeah, we have to grasp the whole and the parts in this simultaneous manner to uh, to be able to understand behavior. Um, and uh, and so this this applies. So this is like the organism in the situation. So the in this case, the patients that we're looking at um, or human beings responding to some sort of um, stimulation, you know, a word printed on the page, for example. Um, so these uh, organisms have to have this kind of capacity to grasp the whole um, and the parts at the same time. But then also us as uh, observers, when we're doing psychology or physiology, we have to um, have this capacity as well. We have to observe the organism, um, and we have to be able to see its response um, in this articulated way. So we have to see how the whole and the parts are related to each other and structured um, to be able to understand its behavior. So, like this, this theory sort of applies to itself in the sense that um, we can only, as observers um, of of animal behavior, we can only um, uh, we're only capable of understanding animal behavior because we ourselves are animals that um, have this capacity for uh, grasping articulated holes. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's there's a sort of second order application of this theory to itself, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, I think um, to that point earlier on, he mentions as well how if we take the, I guess, the classical way of understanding pathologies, um, you know, as a subtraction of some capacity that the patient used to have, right? Um, that kind of analysis, or well, that presupposition sort of leads into an analysis that will not take into account other, um, you know, other symptoms that don't fit into um, in, into that sup supposition itself, right? So, you know, with anaphasia, you think of it in terms of specific language fu function being limited. And then um, I think earlier on he mentions that uh, 
other things are um, understood as uh, being like secondary um, um, symptoms or as symptoms caused by secondary lessons or something like that, when maybe a different approach would have, um, you know, taken into consideration all of these things at once in trying to characterize the way the this sort of structural change has happened in the patient, right? Yeah, exactly. So, like, um, if you, if yeah, if you start from this presupposition that injury reveals, injury just subtracts some function from the repertoire of functions that the organism uh, was able to perform before the injury, um, then when you find that the patient um, not only has language deficiencies but all sorts of other deficiencies in terms of um, anything that requires grasping a whole situation uh, in this articulated way, um, then you would have to say, oh, the patient must have injuries not just to the language region of the brain, but also to the, um, I don't know, the uh, motor regions um, because they can't perform like an action in this sort of fluid way. Um, uh, They must have like all sorts of other lesions in the brain in, in all sorts of other regions because so many other aspects of their behavior um, are, are also affected by this injury. Uh, but then, uh, like in this particular case, that turns out to be not very plausible because we know that the the patient was injured by one piece of shrapnel. Um, so we, we know that the, the actual lesion is probably fairly localized. Um, uh, and then the only reason that we would have to suppose that there are other lesions elsewhere in the brain is precisely because we presuppose that there must be this very simple uh, re- uh, relationship between uh, regions of the brain and functions that are um, missing or deficient in the patient after the injury. Um, so yeah, and and then so it, it leads us by presupposing that we have this very simple relationship um, between brain regions and types of behavior. Um, it leads us to sort of neglecting aspects of the um, of our observation of the patient's behavior. Um, so we ha- we have to say that you know this one. Uh, deficiency that we observe is like the primary one and then these other ones are secondary or less important um, as opposed to sort of observing the patient's behavior as a whole um, in precisely the sense of the this articulated whole that um, the, or the structured whole that we we can grasp um, if we if we have this kind of observation then we can sort of understand the the meaning of uh, the deficiency so we can say yeah the patient is incapable of grasping articulated holes as opposed to saying they have a deficiency in x and in y and in z etc um and and so in in this sense um this uh this type of observation is more empirical in the sense that we're not sort of coming at the observation with a hypothesis about what what types of cause are capable of bringing about this kind of observation and then sort of trying to fit our observations into that presupposition um we're, we're instead sort of allowing ourselves to observe the behavior um, without that presupposition. And, um, and, and then on the basis of that observation, then we um, sort of grasp the behavior of the patient as a whole of, you know, uh, an organism as a, uh, as a whole entity responding to its environment in, and trying to solve problems. Um, and, and so, yeah, this, this is more... Uh, we're we're sort of sticking closer to what we observe, um, even though we're um, uh, you know doing our observation in this more uh, like what what we mean by observation is different than the, what the the reflex theorists 
mean by it. Um, but we're sticking closer to what we would normally describe as observation. Okay, uh, I think we can go on to the next bit if uh, someone can pick up from Lashley's experiments. I can read, I think. Um, Lashley's experiments, which were resumed by Buitendick, confirm this description of morbid behavior in, cent in central cortical lesion. Neither the elementary movements which quote-unquote compose the behavior of a rat the acts of walking, jumping, standing on its hind legs, nor the sensory discriminations which govern them seem to be compromised after cauterization of the central and frontal cortical regions. But the animal is, I don't know how to pronounce this word, uh, maladroit. All his movements are slow and rigid, although in the normal state he is lively and agile. If the rat has to walk on a wooden lath a few centimeters wide, his foot often slips sideways. The animal falls when he tries to turn around or get down. Everything takes place as if the impressions, here open quotes, which in the normal state govern movements by their space-time relations, by their configuration, could no longer sufficiently determine the operated animal, uh, end quote. Its movements are no longer linked together. It takes a morsel out of biscuit, but bites a stick placed near it, grasps the food with its teeth, but does not at the same time execute the movements of the feet which would be necessary. While normal rats learn rather quickly to go down a stairhead first in order to go to their, to their nest, and after a little hesitation, accustom themselves to, find their, to finding their nest at the bottom of a stair oriented in the opposite direction, in the operated rats, on the contrary, learning takes much longer, and once acquired, it is uh, it's not easily transferred to a different situation. Everything happens as if the behavior of the operated animal were no longer oh, sorry, uh, were no longer governed by the spatial relation of the stairs to the nest, but by the concrete grouping, grouping in which this spatial structure is, as it were, submerged. Intact animals in a tea labyrinth accustom themselves without difficulty to choosing the path on the right, which will lead to their nest, and also quickly accustom themselves to choosing the path on the, le on the left if they no longer find a goal at the end of the first. On the contrary, the operator rats persevere in the acquired habits even after 6 days and 25 unfavorable, unfavorable trials. Thus, in them adaptation to the right side is not of the same nature as in normal rats. One could say that in the case of the operated animal, the path on the right, on the right determines the orientation of the walking by its particular concrete properties, and that in the normal animal, on the contrary, adaptation is acquired in relation to a certain typical structure. This would explain why it can be easily transferred to another situation materially different from the first. Finally, rats accustomed to traversing long L-shaped pathways, oh, a long L-shaped pathway in order to arrive at their food will prefer another shorter one if the goal is visible at the end. Operated animals, however, continue to utilize the longer pathway as if the spatial relations relations of objects had ceased to be reflexogenic for them. One could summarize these observations by saying that the operated rat, like the man with a brain injury, ceases to regulate his behavior by that which is essential in a situation and which can be found in, in other analogous situations. Open quotes. The general functional disorder consists in a reduced perception of holes, gestalten, and in a reduced differentiation of actions. End quotes. Um, do I keep reading or? Uh, yeah, we can stop here actually because this is a sort of a break between this um, small print section and the rest of the the text. Um, 
Yeah, thanks. Um, so yeah, this again is, is just sort of showing how the same type of deficiency can occur in uh, in rats who have this um, mutilation, um, this experimental mutilation, um, as in human patients who have suffered brain damage. Um, um, yeah, so um, the animal, so here again, the rat that has suffered this um, lesion uh, doesn't just sort of exhibit uh, a lack of one particular kind of behavior. Instead, their whole um, way of adapting to spatial organization seems to be um, much more much more concrete than it was before the injury. Um, so like rats that have not suffered this kind of injury are capable of sort of learning one spatial orientation and then restructuring that spatial orientation when the situation changes so they can learn that um, my nest is on the right hand side of this maze uh, and then if the experimenter intervenes and sort of flips the maze around, uh, the rat will look on the right-hand side and then realize, oh, it's not here, so it must be on the left-hand side, and then go in the other direction. And, you know, they'll, they'll figure this out after maybe one or two trials um, that they no longer look on the right-hand side. Now they look on the left-hand side. Um, but then the rats that have um, uh, had this lesion, um, this experimental lesion, um, they keep going down the right-hand side you know, many times, like uh, 25 times, um, looking for their their nest where where it was before, and then they they never learn to look on the left hand side, um, uh, even after you know many many times not finding it where they expected to find it on the right hand side. Uh, so for these rats, it's not so much they, instead of having like a, a sort of um, map of the situation that shows the overall spatial orientation of like where I am and where my ne my nest is and then trying to find um, a path from from my location to the nest. Uh, instead, they just have a sort of very concrete um, um, response to like perceiving a corner and then turning right as the response to that that perception. Um, and they, they don't sort of grasp the whole spatial orientation. Uh, and and so because they they can't grasp that spatial orientation, they just persist in this response of turning right at the corner every time they see that corner. Um, and so it's this very concrete um, um, relationship between a certain stimulus and a certain response, as opposed to grasping what is essential about a situation, grasping the sort of spatial structure of the situation, and then um, being able to learn that that structure has changed if they, you know, get negative uh, evidence, you know, they, they try going right and learn that, you know, the nest is actually not on the right-hand side anymore. Um, so, yeah, th this this sort of deficiency, again, is, is a kind of deficiency of grasping the essential structure of a whole or grasping an articulated whole all at once. Um, and so these rats are, are sort of um, stuck with these very concrete responses to individual details of a situation as opposed to um yeah like uh a more um uh, uh i don't want to use the word holistic because it, it sort of um suggests a kind of vague intuition or something but like this there's more um this capacity to grasp the essentials of a whole situation at once uh is is missing in these rats after the injury the same way it was missing in the patients who had suffered brain damage the human patients who had suffered brain damage does anyone know enough about um the like uh, uh, I remember reading about Hubert Dreyfus's criticism of uh, older um, artificial intelligence models being something 
sort of similar to this inability to grasp the significance of the whole um, and trying to kind of build up to it uh, through attention to detail, but um, not having the that uh, holistic ability. I don't know if that's at all relevant um, to what we're talking about here. Yeah, I think it is relevant. Um, so like in early AI or sort of mid-period AI stuff, like in the 80s, um, um, there was what was known as the frame problem. And I think it's still discussed today, actually. But um, so this was the idea that like people would try to develop um, uh, like AI systems that would be able to understand a story, like, you know, very simple stories like that you would tell to a, a four-year-old or something. Um, but like... Uh, when you when you try to like feed in like uh, just like take the text from a kid's book and sort of feed it into this system, what they found was that all kinds of other things that any four year old knows, you had to like explicitly tell the computer like objects don't just spontaneously float up off the table and you know uh, move around on their own. Like uh, all these sort of basic physics facts and like um, sort of basic principles of human motivation and things like that, you had to like explain all these different things. Um, because if you don't explicitly say that, like, you know, after you put the cup on the table, the cup will actually stay on the table unless someone moves it. Um, if you don't explicitly say that, then the computer has no way of knowing where the cup is, like, you know, in the next scene after after the character has put the cup on the table or something like that. Um, so you have to, like, build in all this um, sort of background knowledge. But then, like, obviously, like, trying to like make a list of all the different facts about the world that you have to know to be able to understand a children's story is like an impossible task like it would take like millions or billions of like individual facts about the world that like if you put a cup on the table it stays still if you put a plate on the table it stays still if you put a uh an apple on the table it stays still etc like all these different very trivial facts that any like child would understand um you have to list them all explicitly for this type of computer model to um, be able to to grasp, you know, a simple story and like respond to questions in an appropriate way. Um, and and so this is like it's pretty clear that human understanding, like what a four year old understands about the world, to be able to read a children's story, is not like just a list of facts about the world in this very trivial um, way. Uh, instead, they have some sort of um, dynamic and articulated grasp of you know the ways that physical objects interact with each other um like how how um entities behave when you do things with with them in certain ways uh, and so on so it's, it's a much more um structured uh grasp of a situation as opposed to just a, a list of facts facts that are just like atomic um statements about you know what happens when you do x with a, this type of object and then what happens when you do y with this other type of object etc um so uh yeah so this this was sort of one this type of problem or similar types of problems were sort of what led to uh, a lot of dissatisfaction with this um uh sort of rule oriented version of ai so it, it was like this attempt to um develop ai systems by like explicitly building in the types of knowledge that you would need to respond to a certain type of situation. Uh, and um, as, partly as a result of the difficulty of this type of um, AI construction process, uh, it, it motivated people to develop um, the types of tools that we see today in machine learning, where instead of like um, 
like if you want to build an AI system that can recognize pictures of dogs and say, yeah, this is a dog or this is not a dog, um, you could like give it a list of, you know, all the different shapes uh, that a dog can take, depending on what the angle of the photo is and what the lighting is and what breed of dog it is. And like you'd have to give millions of different rules of like, you know, if it has this shape and the lighting is X and et cetera, then it's a dog or it's not a dog. Um, so this would be a, obviously a very arduous task to to um, sort of explicitly program uh, a computer to recognize photos of dogs in this rule-based way. Um, and the actual um, sort of end result is this fairly trivial task that, again, like a four-year-old child can you know pretty easily recognize photos of dogs. Um, um, and so what in more contemporary machine learning forms of artificial intelligence um, is done is that we don't actually you know, tell the computer, this is what a photo of a dog looks like. We instead give it like a million photos of dogs with a label that says, this is a dog. And then we give them a million other photos and say, this is not a dog. And we sort of allow the computer to um, abstract, uh, you know, features of the photos that, um, that and, and it will produce this sort of very abstract um, numerical representation of what a photo of a dog looks like. Uh, and then when you feed it new photos of dogs, it can sort of determine that this is similar enough to the previous photos of dogs that I've seen. Therefore, this is probably a photo of a dog with this you know, percentage of confidence. Um, and so we never actually tell the computer what a dog looks like. We just give it a bunch of photos of dogs uh, and photos of not dogs and label the, the difference between them. Um, so this is supervised learning that I'm talking about. Um, uh, and, and yeah, so this this is a obviously not exactly the same as the way that human children would learn what a dog looks like, but it's much closer. It, it, it's, it's uh, you know, a lot less of sort of explicit rules telling, like, obviously, we never teach children, like, if you see this shape from this angle, then you're seeing a dog. Instead, you just sort of point at a dog and say, look, it's a dog. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, so this is much closer to the way that humans actually learn to use concepts like, um, like dogs or, or cats or whatever um yeah so yeah in kindergarten we don't like you know train kids by just presenting millions of photos of each type of object and and you know labeling them as like this is a dog or not a dog or whatever um so um yeah it's 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 not exactly the same as um uh, so again like part of the difference here is that um uh, a child learns doesn't just get presented with like a static photo of a dog but instead they have a uh, a visual experience uh, that consists of observing a dog over several seconds or minutes or uh, and then you know seeing other animals that um, are, are similar and also observing you know the way they move and so on so the the sort of um, set of information that is being acquired is much richer in the case of the child than it is in the case of the AI system and so and yeah so this is part of the reason why we see that um, even these machine learning systems are in some sense brittle. Like um, what often happens is that you train, um, you train the system to recognize photos of dogs, but you, you don't realize that like all the photos had um, say a certain type of lighting. And then if you take a photo of a dog with a different set of lighting, the system is like completely baffled. It has no way of sort of analyzing this photo and saying, yes, this is a dog, even though for a human observer, it, it's obvious that it's a dog just with different lighting or, you know, seen from a different angle or whatever. So, like, when you're training these AI systems, you have to make sure that your um, uh, input data set has, like, enough 
variety that the system is not just learning like here's what a dog a dog with this lighting and uh you know this angle of view etc like looks like um because yeah if, if you give them a, like too specific a data set then it doesn't actually learn what a dog looks like it, lo it learns you know a dog seen under this lighting and this angle looks like uh and they can recognize that specific angle and and lighting as opposed to like dogs in general and yeah so these like these ai systems in some sense they're similar to these patients that we're talking about um that methylponzi is talking about um where like they can you can you know give it millions of photos of dogs and it will learn how to uh you know recognize dogs but if you give it something slightly different like wolves for example then it might be completely like unable to generalize from this you know one case to something that for a human is is fairly similar um yeah so it, it might i don't know have, be unable to recognize wolves or coyotes or whatever some animal that seems very similar to a dog for us uh it for this computer system it it like you know might just give out sort of nonsense answers uh when you give it something that looks like a dog but it's not quite a dog um uh whereas any human would just even if you've never seen a, a coyote before you would just say it's like some sort of dog-like animal um and and that's a perfectly adequate response whereas the computer might give like you know completely nonsense answers um that don't make any sense in the situation okay uh so let's go on to the next bit um 61 do you have a mic today or are you um able to uh read a section with us uh yeah if you give me one second sorry yeah no worries oh, where did we get up to where uh which page uh, so we are on page 68 um, at the like line break there where how can we represent um, in the bottom third of the page. All right. Sounds good. And just one paragraph. Um, actually, yeah, I can read like maybe a whole, like up to where we get to the on the next page. It has like the heading two, nevertheless, et cetera. Okay, um, sounds good. Up to there. How can we represent nerve functioning for ourselves in keeping with the description of pathological phenomena? The existence of disorders of structure suggests the disorder of a general organizational function. This function must characterize the central cortical region, that region which has long been called the associations. We should not expect to find a multitude of anatomical devices in it, each one predisposed to a certain movement, but rather a regulatory system capable of giving certain general characteristic behavior which depends on it, whole processes which emit, as it were, the structural character of the disorders which we have described. Here, structure must take precedence over content, physiology over an anatomy. Here, a circumscribed lesion would act by interrupting processes and not by curtailing organs. The place of the lesions could vary within the central zone without the clinical picture of the illness being noticeably modified. The nerve substance located there would not be a con in which the instruments of such and such reactions were deposited, but the theater where a qualitatively variable process unfolds. Moreover, this hypothesis is confirmed by the fact. Lashley has already pointed out that the effect of a central lesion, which is, as we have seen, to disassociate the behavior and to compromise its articulation, depends much less on the place of the lesion than on extent. The deficiencies in the case of a central lesion are too different from those which are observed in the case of a peripheral lesion for us to be able to suppose a function of the same type in the two places. After, an, after enucleation, an animal is capable of relearning a labyrinth with six error. The destruction of the visual zone of the cortex permits the habit to be restored again only after 303 error. If the central regions of the nervous system were... Like its receptive terminations, only a bundle of autonomous conductor, the disorders evoked by central lesion ought to have the same character as disorders of peripheral origin. They ought to be at the same time a more elective and less durable, 
They ought to be at the same time more elective and less durable than those which are in fact observed. A disorder of the learning attitude in general would be incon. But the general function of an organiz or sorry, uh, but the general function of organization of which we spoke should not be located in the most central region of the cortex. It would suppose the integrity of the whole, and eccentric lesions could compromise it. Asymmetrical lesions in certain octopi, in addition to their particular effect, determine general disorders analogous to those brought on by the ablation of the cerebral ganglia and a part of the central ganglia. Incompleteness of action comparable to apraxic insufficient cooperation between the two halves of the body, incoordination of the movements of the arms, general excitability increased or lowered, and lab lability of the analogous disorders of structure which we encountered in Goldstein's subject and in that of Beaumont and Grunbaum correspond to lesions localized very differently in the two. In the first case, it most probably involves an extracalcine optic region caused by a piece of shell. In the second case, left frontal lesion is probably involved. Right, so this is essentially just a summary of what we were talking about earlier. Um, so, yeah, the these are, so he's specifically talking here about central lesions. So, um, the, I mean, this is partly uh, antiquated uh, terminology that, that it probably doesn't uh, fit contemporary conceptions of brain physiology and, and anatomy. But the idea here is that um, there are, so like in early, um, in sort of early 20th century physiology, there were, um, there, there was this idea that, yeah, there are certain regions of the cortex that are um, sensory regions or motor regions. So they have like a more direct correspondence to, um, so in, in the case of sensory regions, like they would, so there's like um, visual regions that are um, uh, more responsive to um, visual perception and so on. Uh, and then the, the motor regions would sort of have a direct or relatively direct um, connection to motor behavior. But then there's other regions of the cortex that are not directly tied to either sensory or motor um, uh, ends of the behavior system. Uh, and so, and these were sort of known as association cortex. And so the idea was that um, you have like an input comes in through the, the nerves uh, through, you know, from a sensory stimulation, it reaches the sensory areas. Uh, then it passes to this association area and sort of bounces around and things happen to it. It gets processed in some sense there. Uh, and then it goes out to the motor areas. And then from the motor areas, it passes through the nerves down to the muscles and some sort of um, behavior occurs. Uh, and this was sort of like the general picture of um, the, the sort of cycle of behavior. Um, and so these association areas or these areas that are not directly tied to either um, uh, sensory or motor um, ends of the behavior process. Uh, what Nicolas um, Ponty is arguing here is that these areas are not localized in this very straightforward sense um, that the the reflex theory would have to presuppose. Um, and and so, like what he's suggesting here on the basis of some of these uh, clinical cases is that what matters uh, in terms of the lesions is um, is the extent of the lesion more than the location of that lesion um so what like the the type of deficiency and degree of deficiency that you exhibit after an injury is determined more by how much damage there has been as opposed to where exactly that damage was um and i think this is probably not um considered accurate today uh, i think there's more sort of fine-grained um analysis of localization in these so-called association areas than there was in like 1930s when he's writing this um, but the the sort of general principle um, 
is partly true at least that um yeah we can't we can't sort of uh subtract uh, we can't sort of take the healthy organism and subtract the uh organism after the injury to find what the function of that injured area was as like just a, a sort of remainder after the subtraction um uh you know this is the, the sort of point that i've been talking about the whole time is essentially that the behavior of the organism is a is a whole with its own structure uh whether before or after the injury um and we have to understand the organism as uh an entity that you know tries to solve problems in relation to its environment um after the injury just as much as before the injury okay yeah so i think that part was pretty straightforward um so we can go on to the next bit um i can read page or so let me just take a look uh yeah i'll read about a page uh so yeah so these are like so he, he had this numbered um set of uh theses that you can sort of um extract from the experimental and clinical results um that he's discussing so we just read like everything up to here was the first thesis that we looked at and then we're passing to the second one now two nevertheless nerve functioning cannot be treated as a global process where the intervention of any one uh, of any of the parts would be of equal importance the function is never indifferent to the substrate by which it is achieved. The same authors are, as a matter of fact, in agreement in recognizing that the location of lesions determines, as it were, the point of principal application of disorders of structure and their preferential distribution. As in the case of Schneider, marked deficiencies predominantly in the perceptual domain will correspond to the lesions of the posterior regions of the brain next to the optic sector. On the contrary, disorders affect language particularly, psychic deafness, aphasia, when the lesions are situated in the anterior region of the brain, as in the case of Verkamp's patient or in the auditive region. Thus, there can be no question of relating all behavior to an undifferentiated activity. In spite of the hasty observations of wartime uh, pathology, substitutions can be observed after the destruction of a specialized region of the cortex, but never the restoration of the function. The reorganizations and the substitutions with God, which Goldstein describes mask the deficiency without making it disappear. S always re remains incapable of grasping visual holes and the imitative movements by means of which he succeeds in identifying such holes by retracing their principal lines do not improve the visual givens as such. Inversely, in tactile agnosia, the visual forms uh, assume the function of tactile holes without restoring them. The blind demiretina remains blind in the hemianopic. Most frequently, if the, effects, if the effect useful for the organism remains the same, the substitution represents a detour, and the replacing activity is different in its nature and origin from the original activity. Concerning the alleged assumption of the functions of one hemisphere by the other, it would be established only if it were a case of the total destruction of the first, and if it could be established that the second had not collaborated to some extent in the actions involved before the lesion. But this last condition could never be fulfilled if it is true, as many facts suggest, that the two hemispheres work together in an infant, as the privilege of one of them in the adult does not exclude the hypothesis of collaboration of the other. But how do these specialized regions of the cortex function themselves? Quote, There's no doubt that differently situated sources do not lead to the same tableau of symptoms, that the place of the lesions has an essential significance in the constitution of a particular tableau of symptoms. The whole question is to discover the nature of this significance and the manner in which the lesion of a particular place causes a particular set of symptoms to appear. End quote. The facts which force us to admit a specialization of the cerebral regions do not eliminate the relation of these regions to the whole with regard to functioning. Authors are also in agreement in accepting that the regions are not specialized in the reception of certain contents, but rather in the structuration of these latter. Everything happens as if they, in turn, were not the seat of certain anatomical devices, but the terrain for the exercise of an activity of organization applied, it is true, to a certain type of materials. 
We were saying that the occipital situation of the lesion involves in Gelpin Goldstein's subject a predominance of perceptual disorders which asserted themselves first in the analysis. Subsequent investigations have shown that, more generally, it is the simultaneous intuition of holes that is deficient in Fs. Should this nosic disorder be derived from the perceptual disorder observed initially? Is it because the visual forms are dislocated that the simultaneous intuition of holes has become difficult? Is it made of visual forms as a house is made of stones? Correlatively, is total functioning of the cortex the sum of the local functioning? Psychological empiricism and physiological atomism are allied in this matter. The facts give no indication which would be favorable to them. Since there are substitutions and since the intuition of simultaneous multiplicities, when it is impossible by means of visual givens, is achieved in one way or another by means of the successive givens of touch, it is not as such absolutely conditioned by the existence of visual forms and correlatively cannot be localized in the injured occipital region. The inverse hypothesis becomes more probable. The constitution of visual forms in the normal person would depend on a general organizational function, which would also condition the possession of simultaneous holes. The natural functioning of the occipital region would demand the collaboration of the central cortical region. But we have seen, on the other hand, that substitutions are never restorations. The apprehension of simultaneous holes becomes rudimentary when the visual contents are not available, not because it depends upon them as an effect depends upon its cause, but because they alone furnish it with an adequate symbolism and are in this sense irreplaceable auxiliaries. Thus, the constitution of visual forms can neither be attributed properly to the occipital region as if, as if it did not need the collaboration of the center, nor can the apprehension of simultaneous holes be localized in central activity as if it owed nothing to the special materials of the optic zone. An occipital lesion compromises the apprehension of simultaneous holes by withdrawing from central activity its most appropriate instruments. The relations of local functioning to central functioning are understood in the same manner by Pierron. Occipital lesions evoke disorders of visual thought and left temporal, uh, temporal parietal lesions evoke disorders of verbal thought, not because these regions are the seat of corresponding modes of thought, but because they find there the privileged means of their realization. Quote, Modes of thought and the associative processes can be carried out around a predominant sensory nucleus with differences according to individuals and, in a given individual, according to the circumstances, end quote. Right, so here is, this is sort of like the counter to what we saw in the last bit. Um, so um, on the one hand, it's true that um, there's no sort of uh, straightforward correspondence between like this one area of the brain and this one function, uh, but at the same time, it's not the case that every section of the brain is just part of one whole that sort of operates as a unit. Um, there is differentiation in the brain. Um, it's just not this very straightforward kind of localization that the, the reflex physiologists think uh, think it is. Um, and what he suggests, or um, what the, the last bit of this section, what he's suggesting here is that there's a kind of interrelation of the uh, we can say maybe the form and the matter uh, or form and content of um, different mental actions or psychological responses. Uh, so this capacity to grasp a situation as a whole that, that he described in the last section, um, this, would, this capacity would operate um, sort of electively or um, would privilege visual perceptions precisely because they, in a visual perception we can have a simultaneous grasp of a structured um, uh, situation. So we can, for example, see a word on the page, we, we grasp the whole word, um, but at the same time, we, we do so by means of grasping the individual letters. Um, so the, the visual perception of the word on the page um, uh, allows us to sort of simultaneously grasp this structured situation or this structured perception um, uh, 
Uh, and so the when there is a deficiency of visual perception, for example, it means that there's um, uh, it, it makes it harder for this um, more abstract faculty uh, or capacity to um, grasp a structured whole to actually exercise itself. Uh, and then conversely, um, if there's an injury that affects this uh, more abstract capacity to grasp structured holes, um, even if our sort of basic visual um, machinery is not affected, it will affect our capacity to respond to visual stimuli. Um, so, for example, we won't be able to recognize the word as a whole anymore. We might have to like trace each individual letter and sort of laboriously piece together what the word is. Um, uh, and so, uh, yeah, so in this situation, again, you have a, a deficiency that is sort of primarily rooted in an incapacity to grasp the situation as a whole, as a structured whole. Um, uh, but it is sort of manifested in the visual sphere um, as a, an incapacity to um, grasp uh, a structured visual perception. So again, there's a sort of interrelation, which means that um, uh, which, which sort of brings about this um, uh, equivalence that we saw in the, the first bit about um, how you know injuries to different regions of the brain can produce similar effects. Um, so like if you have an injury to the visual areas that makes it harder to exercise your capacity to grasp structured holes, that might bring about a similar type of deficiency in terms of reading as uh, a different injury that affects your capacity to grasp structured holes um, that in turn makes it hard to grasp um, uh, structured visual perceptions. Um, so yeah, similar uh, effects can result from different types of injuries if those different uh, functions are interrelated in this type of type of uh, structure that he's um, identifying here. Yeah, Babs, I think your summary is right. So um, in the in the chat here for those listening, um, so uh, Bat says, we understand a certain differentiation in the brain, but different activities are the result of the cooperation of a whole bunch of areas that also require an area of the brain that allows for this interrelation to occur. Uh, yeah, so I think that's right. So yeah, you have like, um, so something even that seems like one sort of function like reading, you can say that um, obviously it involves like, Sort of basic perception of visual shapes like you have to be able to recognize dark regions from light regions uh and you know what angle and curve and 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 these types of basic forms are on uh in visual perception um um yeah localized non-locality would be a, a very sort of compact way of expressing this um yeah so, so like to be able to read you have to be able to recognize um you know lined on a page and what uh, orientation those lines have to each other um, uh, but then you have to also, um, be able to sort of extract, um, the essential structure of those line, uh, orientations, uh, and, you know, um, ignore everything that's like not important. So like, uh, for example, letters can have different fonts. Um, and so like, uh, the letter A might look, uh, different in, in one font versus another one, but you can just ignore those differences and grasp that it's still the letter A. Um, no matter which font is actually um, being used. Um, and, and so that's part of our capacity to read is like, if you could only ever read one exact font and one particular size and orientation and lighting and so on, then then your capacity to read would be much more limited than like, you know, an average human being who was able to read. Um, and so, yeah, this capacity to um, abstract from the, the specific details of one situation and grasp something essential about the whole situation is um is like uh 
one of the essential functions that contributes to our ability to read. So um, you can have you know two different patients that you might equally say they're unable to read or they have deficiency in reading after a, a brain injury, but one might have a deficiency in reading because uh, you know some of the basic visual functions are are damaged following a lesion to the occipital region, um, and then other the other patient might have um, deficiency in reading uh, because this sort of um, grasping essential structure capacity has been damaged um, following frontal uh, a frontal lesion. Um, so yeah, again, you can have like a similar type of phenomenon or a similar type similar type of deficiency. Um, in these two patients, but they could be resulting from like very different types of injuries. Um, and uh, it could be a product of deficiencies in different capacities that sort of manifest themselves in the same way. And the other point here that he mentions that uh, I had mentioned a little bit earlier is that, um, you know, a patient after an injury um, will try to compensate for that injury, um, you know, by like, for example, the patient who is no longer capable of grasping a word written on a page as a structured whole, uh, just by visual perception, um, you know, may be able to trace the letters with their finger, um, and as a result, you know, be able to identify which letters are are present, and then identify the word as a whole based on sort of an educated guess of which letters appear in that word. Um, uh, so this is a sort of workaround to. Um, you know, recognize a written word, which is obviously much more laborious and uh, time-consuming and probably more error-prone than um, the average person's reading ability. Uh, but it does sort of recover, to some extent, the ability to read. Um, but what's important to recognize is that it's not a sort of, um, like, after this injury, the patient never just recovers their original ability um, in sort of the same way as, as it existed before the injury. Instead, they can have, they can have like, more or less successful um, workarounds um, that either, you know, to some extent can mask the deficiency um, or sort of compensate for the deficiency, but they never like sort of fully recover the exact same ability that they had prior to the injury. Uh, and you see this also with like stroke patients where um, uh, they might be unable to speak uh, shortly after the stroke. Uh, and then a few months later, they are able to speak. Um, but normally they will, um, or like it's often the case that they exhibit um, they slur their words a little bit, or especially when they get tired, um, they they'll have a hard time speaking. Um, so it's never it's not exactly the same capacity to speak that they had before the the stroke. Um, it's it's like a sort of workaround has developed that allows them to maybe like eighty percent of the time speak um, in a comprehensible manner, but then the remaining twenty percent of the time they 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 still have that. Um, uh, deficiency is still um, uh, perceivable. Um, so yeah, again, it's, it's always, um, there's never a sort of complete recovery of something that has been lost due to injury to the brain. Instead, you have like these workarounds and um, compensations for uh, deficiencies that, you know, may be more or less successful depending on the specifics of the case. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next section. Uh, if I can get a volunteer to read from the uh, point three Break on page 72. I can read. Three. Consequently, place in nerve substance has an equivocal signification. Only a mixed conception of localizations and a functional conception of parallelism can be accepted. Certain forms of behavior depend on the cerebral cortex, the central cortex. Not that they are made up of the same elementary movements whose memos or orders would be located there. 
but inasmuch as they are of the same structure, permit classification under the same idea and are situated at the, on the same human level. Normal sexual initiatives and the lucid handling of numbers, equally compromised in the case of S, have no elementary movement, no real part in common. They permit comparison and even definition only by means of certain quote-unquote anthropomorphic predicates. It could be said, for example, that these two behaviors are quote, adaptations to the virtual, unquote. Consequently, the functioning in this central region cannot be understood as the activation of, a spe of specialized mechanisms, each one of which would correspond to a movement in space, but as a global activity capable of conferring the same typical form, the same value predicate, or the same significance on movements which are materially different. From one action to another, this central functioning would not vary by the number of devices put into play. The same substrate would function in two actions in a qualitatively different manner. If a mass of cells and conductors is called, called quote-unquote brain, the higher forms of behavior would not be contained in the brain, taken in this sense. They would be related to the brain only as a functional entity. If one understands by space a multiplicity of parts external to, external to each other, they would not be in space. We can always consider the brain in a space defined by the mutual exteriority of homogeneous parts, but it must be understood that the physiological reality of the brain cannot be represented in this space. A lesion in the central region of the cortex produces the observed effects, not in as much as it compromises this type of functioning or that level of conduct. Uh, Thus, whatever the location and development of the lesions, a systematic disintegration of function will be observed. These are the localizations which have been designated by the name of, quote, vertical localizations, unquote. On the other hand, it is clear that on the level of the conductors which carry messages received by the senses to the brain or distribute the appropriate excitations to the different muscles, each part of the nerve tissue has the role of guaranteeing, quote, the relationship between the organism and a certain part of the outer world, unquote. To each point of nerve substance and to the phenomena which are produced in it, there corresponds a point of sensitive surfaces or of the muscles and an external stimulus or a movement in space, at the least a component of bodily movement. Um, at this level, lesions will have the effect of withdrawing the organism from the influence of certain stimuli or of eliminating a certain stock of movements without there being anything systematic in the sensory or motor deficiency. The activation of different regions of the substrate, horizontal localizations, quote-unquote horizontal localizations, corresponds at this level to different perceived contents or different executed movements. Nevertheless, in normal functioning and accepting the case of peripheral lesions, do nerve conductors bring a contribution to total behavior which would be assignable in isolation? No, since we have seen that they are in functional relation with the center. The situation of elementary stimuli on the receptors does not determine in a univocal manner the spatial or qualitative characteristics of the corresponding perceptions which also depend on the constellation of simul simultaneous stimuli. And we will encounter in disorders of elementary vision, colors and light, not a deficit which depends on the place of the lesion, 
but a systematic destruction of visual function, which proceeds from the seeing of colors, which is more, quote-unquote, integrated and fragile, to the seeing of light, which is less integrated and more solid. Um, uh, you can read the, the next short paragraph because there's a section break right after. Oh, I see. Thus, subordinated vertical localizations must be accepted within the visual area, given that it is connected with the center and functioning, uh, which, given that it is connected with the center and functioning, is defined as, quote-unquote, horizontal localization. Uh, it is in this regard that the classical definition of zones of projection and association is not satisfactory. Local excitations distributed at the surface of the receptors undergo from the moment of their entrance into the specialized sectors of the cortex, a series of structurations which dissociate them from the context of spatiotemporal events in which they were really engaged, in which orders them according to the original dimensions of organic and human activity. Okay, so uh, there are the both vertical and horizontal localizations. Um, it seems like the horizontal localizations are horizontal with respect to this central region uh, or connected with the central region and functioning. So like the there would be a horizontal visual localization, which nonetheless has a vertical structuration so that uh, lesion in this kind of this um, visual region will... Um, have this destructuring effect starting with uh, the more fragile uh, visual functions like seeing colors and not seeing light. Yeah, I think um, it probably makes sense here to start from trying to understand what this distinction between vertical and horizontal localization means. Um, and it, I'm not 100% sure about this, but as far as I understand it, I think it has to do with whether there is a sort of correspondence between real parts of the um, of the like uh, of the anatomy, so like different portions of the brain separate from each other in space on on the one hand, uh, and then um, the different um, sort of components of behavior uh, on the other hand. So in the case of horizontal localization, you have this um, um, relatively straightforward. It might be more complicated in some instances, but you have a a correspondence between real parts of the brain, so different pieces of brain that are outside each other in space um, on the one hand, and then you have different elements of behavior on the other hand. So like, um, uh, like I've I mentioned this in an earlier session, there are retinotopic maps in the visual cortex. So like there are regions of the brain uh, that are um, that corresponds to regions of the retina so that if you have damage to a certain region of the brain, then uh, certain types of visual perception in a certain region of the retina are no longer registered or the, the organism is no longer able to respond to, uh, say, like uh, line segments in that region of the retina. Um, and so this is a horizontal localization. So it's like uh, a localization of functions outside each other in, in space. Um, this vertical localization is a little bit more nebulous or a little harder to understand, but the way I'm sort of picturing it, it's, it's as if... Um, like if we sort of picture the brain as a two-dimensional surface, um, and which of course is a, a an oversimplification because the brain is actually structured in three dimensions, but if we sort of represent the brain as if it were like uh, completely stretched out into a, a flat surface, then this vertical localization would be like multiple functions stacked up uh, in one 
uh, uh, square or one um, shape on this surface. Um, and so like the example that he gives at the beginning of this section is um, in the case of S, um, where he says uh, sexual initiatives and the lucid handling of numbers. Um, so um, these are two functions that have no real component in common with each other. There's no like um, set of motions of the body in space that are necessarily common to these two types of behavior. Um, but at the same time, they're both affected by the, the lesion that this person has suffered. Um, and so we can say that in some sense, those two functions are localized in the area that has been injured. But it's not the case that there are sort of um, components of uh, each of these behaviors outside each other in space that are um, each affected by the lesion. Instead, you have these two functions and probably many more functions that have some sort of shared structure um, that are all like stacked up on top of each other. Uh, in this one region of the of the brain. It's as if there's like an extra dimension of space in the brain of all these, like a space of functions um, that are stacked up on top of each other. Um, uh, and all of these functions are localized in this region in the sense that damage to that region affects all these different functions. So I think that's that's what he means here by this distinction between horizontal localization, which would be sort of outside each other in space, and vertical localization, which is like, um, multiple functions all in one, uh, all affected by one region or all involved in one region. Um, and then, yeah, so, I mean, this, this passage is a little bit complicated because he sort of introduces this distinction and then immediately sort of qualifies it because he says, when we talk about the visual, um, visual cortex, for example, um, so there is this sort of uh, horizontal localization in visual areas of the brain um, um, where um, um, yeah, like different parts of the visual cortex are outside each other in space and correspond to different portions of the retina, for example, or different um, uh, elements of visual perception. Um, but at the same time, there is a, a, a sort of vertical um, localization going on in the retina, in the visual cortex as well. Uh, and this is something he just sort of mentions in passing, but he's going to talk about more later. But for example, um, it's not the case that that um, one particular illumination on the retina always produces one particular visual experience as the sort of effect of a cause. Um, what we find instead is that, um, and I think uh, I talked about this a little bit in one of the Simon Don readings, but um, we have, for example, color constancy in our visual perception. So it means that like, if you take a, a white sheet of paper, um, and you look at it under sunlight, uh, you know, just regular normal illumination. It looks it looks white. Um, but then if you take um, an electric light uh, while the sunlight is still shining, and you 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 shine the electric lamp onto the white sheet of paper, the paper will will look sort of yellowish. Uh, but then after the sun sets and the electric lighting is your sort of general illumination um, of the whole situation, uh, the paper no longer looks yellow. It looks just normal white paper. Um, uh, and so the the actual light reflected off the paper um, is is the same whether the lighting is um, sort of confined to the region of the paper in the one case or if it's the general illumination of the room in the other case. Um, but what we perceive uh, as the color of the paper is different depending on what we perceive as the general illumination. Um, uh, so like, um, yeah, so the the color that we perceive the paper to have depends not just on what 
uh, type of light is striking our retina in the region that we identify as that paper. Um, it instead depends on the whole um, set of illumination of the situation of the, the room or the environment where we find ourselves. Um, so what this means, again, is that um, our, our visual perception is not just a, a horizontally localized, it's not just made up of sort of individual uh, components that are outside each other in space, but instead each of the, the uh, aspects of our visual perception has this sort of more intricate interrelation with each other so that um, there's a kind of top-down structuration of, uh, of our visual perception. So like what color I perceive in one region of space depends not just on the light striking my retina in a particular region uh, that would then sort of be tra transmitted to my visual cortex. Um, it also depends on what the um, illumination of the whole scene is that I'm perceiving. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so like the even these sensory areas that would supposedly be just horizontally structured um, exhibit, if you if you look at it more closely, they exhibit um, this vertical uh, localization as well. Uh, so that's part of why this passage is a little bit difficult to to follow because he he introduces this um, seemingly or or roughly straightforward distinction between horizontal and um, and vertical localization, and this would in some sense correspond to the distinction between sensory and associative areas that was used in the early twentieth century. Um, but then he immediately goes on to say, actually, it's more complicated than this because even the sensory areas also exhibit vertical localization. Um, so yeah, it, it's a, it's a it's a sort of subtle um, distinction that he's making here that he wants to he wants to sort of complicate the pre-existing distinction between sensory and associative areas and and argue that even the sensory areas also exhibit this uh, vertical localization as well. And yeah, that passage that sixty one had posted in the chat here about how the physiological reality of the brain cannot be represented in space. Um, so this is maybe a little bit um, of an exaggeration, uh, but the idea here is that um, because because the brain exhibits this vertical localization structure or property, um, it means that um, it, it, it's as if you had to add another dimension of functions to the three dimensions of space of the brain. Um, like you can localize, um, you can you can do localization and say that you know injury to this area brings about this kind of deficiency, um, but the the set of deficiencies will never be like just one. It will never be a singleton set. It will never be one very concrete type of um, of deficiency. Instead, it will be all the different functions that are sort of vertically stacked up in that extra dimension of functions in that one region. Um, and so you might have things like yeah the sexual initiative and the lucid manipulation of numbers that have no sort of um, real connection to, with each other. So there's no like um, set of muscle movements that are necessarily common to these two types of behavior. But instead, there's this um, more abstract uh, vertical relationship between these two functions um, that um, are sort of stacked up on top of each other. Uh, this uh, and this requires us to sort of represent uh, an extra functional dimension that would not um, sort of be in space in the same way that the three dimensions of you know the, the the different components of the brain that are outside each other in space in three dimensions are outside each other. So that's that's how I understand that passage. Okay, uh, so we're almost at time and we're at uh, a section break here. So I would yeah, and this is you've got like more than the page of this uh, small print section. So I would suggest that we stop here for today, if that's okay with everyone.
Okay, so yeah, so we'll pick up from page 74 of the PDF or of the translation next time. Um, yeah, so thanks everyone for coming out. Thanks for your uh, questions and contributions. Um, hope to see you next time.